Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho, the pot of thunder and rock and roll. The remedy for boredom has arrived, and it's here. It's Friday. And we're going to kick off the weekend with a funny, funny guy. We've had a lot of funny guys on the show over the last uh, few weeks, few months. That's what we want here. We want this to be a laugh riot, man. That's why we're doing this. But this could be the funniest guest we've ever had. Dana Carvey is here. Howdy, partner. The greatest, funniest, most hilarious cast member in SNL history, in my opinion. He's also bringing a whole slew of his closest friends, including former President George Bush. As, as you can see, I got, got my Nikes. <laughs> Just that. Adam Sandler, Johnny Carson. That, that is some weird, wild stuff. Garth Algar from Wayne's World. Swing. Climbing up the rope at gym class. Make me feel funny. <laughs> Give me the worst Garth impression ever. At the Stones, Keith Richards is here. Neil Young, that's a obscure reference. And all four members of the Beatles, including George Harrison. He's got uh, he's got all those guys here. He's got great stories about the church lady. <laughs> Your naked breasts are oiled up nicely. Chris Farley, Phil Hartman, and all of his SNL life at uh, the time that he had there. And wait until you hear how he became involved in Wayne's World and who really inspired the golf Algar character. She makes me feel funny, like climbing the rope in gym class. <laughs> He's also talking drum solos, both uh, Garth solo in Wayne's World and the church lady's crazy infamous drum solo on SNL. Dana has a new reality competition show, First Impressions, that's on the USA Network. It's airing Tuesday nights at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to talk all about that, and too. We're going to talk about the art of the impression, the art of comedy. Dana Carvey's comedy clinic is about to get underway. Showing. All right, so we got Dana Carvey coming up. I just want to uh, tell you how this came to be. I want to give the assist to Dennis Miller, who was my 200th guest here on Talk is Jericho back in December. I met Dennis when we did a pilot for the History Channel, which hasn't been ex- uh, been greenlit or been rejected. It's been like six months already. It's like Dennis said, he goes, if it's not dead yet, then it's barely breathing, babe. The heartbeat's getting slower as we go. Anyways, uh, I had a good relationship with Dennis, became friends with him, and I just texted him one day and I said, hey, is there any way uh, you could hook me up with Dana Carvey's publicist? And he said, I'll get Carvey for you. He's a great guy. You gotta do it. I kind of sound like a cross between Dan Aykroyd and... Um, uh, and George Bush, we're on a mission from God, not going to do it, not going to do it. Anyways, I mean, impressions is not my thing, but uh, he hooked me up with Dana, Dana's publicist, and he kept calling Carvey. Has Carvey called you yet? No, he hasn't. He kept calling Dana until finally they made it so. So thank you so much to Dennis Miller for the assist in setting up this great interview with one of his best friends and one of the funniest guests I've ever had on Talk is Jericho. Ladies and gentlemen, I unleash the comedic genius of Dana Carvey. To fight my demonic urges, I popped a butter rum lifesaver and sucked away like there was no tomorrow. All right. (laughs) It sounds fancy. <laughs> you like that? It's like smooth jazz. Hey, on the line. Well, I mean, you know, I've done podcasts where people are like, you know, it's basically a little microphone comes out of their wallet or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's the we're talking with the uh, the legendary Dana Carvey. Can I can I say that? Is that weird that for to say the legendary Dana Carvey? Well, it's funny when I did a movie with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster for your listeners over forty. They were the <laughs> superstar movie stars. So I did their last movie together. And when I met 
Kirk Douglas, first of all, do the voice. I met him, and I'm meeting my hero. This is like, you know, and I'm like, hi, I'm Dana. I play Richie. And he says, well, you're perfect. You're exactly what we need. <laughs> you know, so I go, wow, he really talks like that. And I said, well, you, I said, well, you're a legend. He said, don't say that. Sounds like I'm almost dead. <laughs> so I didn't really know. Um, eventually, you get to an age where everyone's just sort of happy the old guy's doing it, and this could be the last time. Right. And I don't know if I've entered that phase, but, yeah, it seems like I get warm welcomes wherever I go. Like, hey, he's just he's actually still doing it. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like, It's funny because you, you go right into this wicked impression and um, – you know, I was just thinking about uh, when I was looking at, I actually did a little research for, for this. And the fact that you just did the church lady last week, it's like huge news. If you Google Dana Carvey, the first thing that comes up is like 50 different uh, links on you reprising the church lady, which is such a beloved character that you created. Um, when you do something like that, does it surprise you? Like you said, that people still freak out over the fact that Carvey's doing Church Lady, turn the channel. Yeah, because it's because uh, of the. I mean, the last time I did it, the explosion of the web. I guess we had we had it, but it's just more explosive now. Because I think I did it when I hosted six years ago, but this time it's just all these news sites are just so hungry for anything, and the fact that. It had a political nature, and crews had just dropped out. But, yeah, I was surprised at the amount of matriculation that I saw. You know, all I see is the mistakes and that I was too busy to really work on it mm-hmm. as much as I normally do. Right. <laughs> so, but there were a few good lines. It just didn't have that pop. You know, she's ultimately a prosecuting attorney, so there should be this back and forth. And we was it. But, you know, everyone did the best they could. <laughs> Under you know, Normally I just focus on Saturday Night Live, but I was doing press all week. And I came off um, shooting a, a stand-up special in Boston. So I was kind of, I was down a court, as they say. I was a wee bit tired. It, but, it's um, it's yeah. interesting, though. Like, you know, when you watch, you, you sound like you're a lot like me. Like, people can freak out about a performance uh, that you do. And all you can see is the one or two things like, oh, I should have paused there longer. Or, Why didn't I emphasize this word? And other people would go, no, it was great. But the only person that can tell you it was great is, is how you feel about it afterwards. Do you find that? Oh, completely. If, if There's probably only been 10 sketches, you know, the Pepper Boy or Tom Brokaw or a couple of Carsons here and there, a few church chats where I would come off Saturday Night Live and go, okay, that's an A+. Plus. That's as good as I can do. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time, you're just compromising a little bit because you, you know, you're sort of, oh, I missed that. I rushed that. Oh, I shouldn't have. You know, for example, when and, and Daryl did a long obfuscating thing about Trump kind of BSing that he was religious. Mm-hmm. And um, the dress audience was so hot that the I needed to pause and then do it in that special. But the air audience was good, but they weren't as hot. So I took a long pause, but it just sort of went, oh, you know, <laughs> the little things like that. I'm, but I, I, in the in the big picture, I know and accept it, and it's extremely flattering. Like if I saw Tim Conway live in concert, and he was doing the dentist character, hits himself with the, <laughs> the uh, numbing stuff and going around, I wouldn't be thinking, huh, is this his best? numb dentist guy of everything i would just be like he's doing it right he actually said isn't that special so i understand um but i just you know find that i'm driven the same way as if i was just auditioning to be in show business i don't know why it might be a mental illness 
Mm-hmm. As a perfectionist, though, you know, that's the, the, the art of a true professional, maybe, you know, that, that, that sort of vibe. Did you used to, were you a big fan of Tim Conway? As soon as you mentioned his name, I'm like, I can see a lot of similarities between some of the, the bits that you've done and, and Tim Conway. Well, I hope I was influenced by him. I, I think that there's two categories of influence in, in, in a sense. Like, there's the cool influences. So a lot of comedians in my, my age group, they want to adopt Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor, or, you know, it's hip. Mm-hmm. And certainly those are influences. But then there was these variety show people, when I was a little kid, um, you know, Flip Wilson, um, you know, Tim Conway, right. uh, and Harvey Corman. And so they don't have, like, a hip thing about their legacy, like cool. Mm-hmm. But to me, they're incredibly cool. I mean, Tim Conway has done stuff that's at a brilliant level, like kind of a crazy level of comedy. Um, but he's not considered cool. So I, you know, I mean, I don't know what age your, your listeners are, but every age, every age, there was a show growing up called wild, wild west. And it was a Western. I don't know if you remember it. And it was a, they made a movie. They made a movie, Will Smith and the giant spider. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That didn't work (laughs) out, but the TV show was super hip. And there was sort of a master disguise character, a sidekick to the cool guy played by an actor named Ross Martin. And, um, you know, I'd see him, and he'd be the Chinese guy with makeup, and then he'd be the bartender, and he had a big mustache. <laughs> you know, and years later, I was on Tom Schneider's show when he was still around in the '90s, and I mentioned Ross Martin as an influence, and no one had ever mentioned him. And so I got a nice letter from his widow a couple months later. Thanks for mentioning Ross. It's so great. No one ever mentions Ross. So there's unheralded people sure. who influenced all of us that sometimes you want to shine a spotlight on. You know, really, remember that guy? <laughs> yeah, 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 sure, sure. I used to love the fact, like, watching the Carol Burnett show when I was just a little kid, about how the, the highlight was always when, when, when Conway could make Corman start laughing. If you could see that, it was like you, you felt like you were part of something special because they'd always, at some point, just start laughing in the middle of the sketch. Um, because- I, I know, and, and that was, he would surprise him while they were doing, it was live to tape, but he would change things and intentionally do all that. When I got on SNL, I mean, Lorne had come through and was a writer for Laugh and Lorne Michaels and was around mm-hmm. that era. And we were told early on in 86 with me and Phil and Jan, Kevin and Dennis, um, not to break. You right. know, and we were terrified to break. That's, that's just Carol Burnett. It was considered old hat, old-fashioned <laughs> cornball. And so we never really broke. Phil did a couple times, so we were terrified. And then Sandler brought in his own style where he would sort of break. And mm-hmm. then Jimmy Fallon did. And now it's sort of a, a cool thing to do again. But I came through the phase where I couldn't really break and didn't want to break. Um, I mean, this is like a little bit of a digression, but you kind of don't want to break if the sketch is going great. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times if the wig falls off, everybody breaks. But if the sketch is going really good, you don't want it to be about that everyone cracked up. Because I, I was doing the Pepper Boy with Adam Sandler. I don't know if you know that one. <laughs> you like the pepper, you want the pepper. <laughs> So every time we got to Farley, who could lay you out with one line, you go, "Why well, I'd like some pepper, what? And Sandler would always laugh. So on the air show, it's going really good. We're getting huge laughs. And for a restaurant sketch, you like, pepper, oh, yes, you like, and killing. And then Farley does his line, and Sandler starts to break. So he turns away from the camera and toward me, and his, his, head, his face is shaking. And I leaned into him with the Italian accent and said, I don't break. 
<laughs> I didn't want him to. I didn't want that sketch to be about breaking. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because I often say like, uh, and we can talk about this in a bit. How that was almost a, a real, the true golden era of Silent Live because you guys kind of rescued the franchise at all these amazing, you know, talents that became A-listers for years to come. But I always think to me that Farley's idea in his mind was, I'm going to make these guys break. Even if I only have one line, and the sketch I always use as an example is that exact one, because he has one line, like, well, yes, I'd love some pepper. And it's like yeah. so obnoxious with the big stupid sideburns. It seems like he was just out there just trying to get you guys to, to fall for it. Yeah, I mean, Farley, Chris, you know, um, was a uh, you know, force of nature, obviously. I mean, I've never seen anything in the history of the show. You know, maybe if you want to go back to it when Eddie Murphy was kind of bouncing off sure. the screen, going, get in the hot tub. You know, he was, with <laughs> Chris, when he, when he dug down deep, you know, in the van down by the river sketch, I never seen energy like that come off the screen, you know. So he could just lay you out. And he had a mischievous, childlike thing. He was whip smart. He kind of played the dumb guy in life. I would tease him about it. Come on, Chris, you know. <laughs> he was very smart. He knew exactly what he was doing. But you're right. I mean, I think that when Phil and Mike Myers and, the people I mentioned, the show was coming back really strong. And then around 90, we got our sort of backup for the first mm-hmm. time. Lauren brought in backup. And of course it was, you know, Sandler, Bade, Farley, Chris Rock, Tim Meadows, um, probably missing some. And then Schneider. when we gelled together in those three years, at least for me, 90 to 93, that was the peak years because we had just so many weapons. It's an all-star yeah. cast of guys and girls. And, you know, Sandler would come knock on my door when he wanted to do Opera Man. And he'd go, hi, Carvey, I, I'm doing this uh, uh, artist character called Opera Man. Yeah, would you mind uh, introducing it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> of course I did. It was great. Yeah. How, how crazy was that schedule? Because um, from what I understand, SNL is pretty much a five, six night a week job between rehearsals and writing and kind of being on that carousel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of have a pit in your stomach at the beginning of the week, like, here we go again, you know, mm-hmm. you meet the host, and it's um, really just pressure, you know. A lot of weeks you just didn't really have anything, didn't really understand quite how the show worked initially, like what Lauren was looking for in terms of a first, second, and third act. So, you know, eventually I started partnering up with people. Um, Bonnie and Terry Turner were great for Church Lady. Mm-hmm. And Al Franken for the political stuff when Bush came in and Jim Downey. And that really helped me. And then Robert Smigel, later on, we did a lot, a lot of stuff together. He's he's probably, if I had to make an all-star team, like, you know, of, uh, you know, sketch comedy writers, he would be like the number one draft pick. He would be like the Steph Curry of sketch. Oh, yeah. And sometimes... He's the only guy who could just riff like his Regis or Johnny Carson. And then the next day, the script would be better than what I could have done. You know, so he's just really gifted. When you were talking about Bush, like, is that something where, you know, the Saturday Night Live is, is, is actually seems like it always thrives during a, an election year like it is right now. So mm-hmm. does, does Lauren come in there and say, like, we need someone to play Bush who's going to do it? Or is this, a, is this a, a, a character that you've been working on? Or did you just say, well, I can try it? No, it just came to me by accident because Phil is doing Reagan right. and Clinton, and Lovett looked swarthy, you know, because Dukakis was recent, <laughs> so John, John did that, right. and it was just Bush was left over to me, and I couldn't really do it, and 
there wasn't much there. He just seemed like a technocrat, kind of a flat, whiny after Reagan being, well, here we go again, you know. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while to create a character out of it. I think it took me a good year. And then once I hooked into it and the audience hooked into it, um, it was a blast. I did a lot of cold openings <laughs> with, <laughs> with George Bush Sr. and took a lot of liberty. It was the one thing when you're in a lockdown camera for that length of time, you can improvise. I remember it, the breakthrough for me was one night, you know, I'd been on the show a while. I just said the, the cue cards are suggestions. <laughs> it's a way to free yourself up from being locked in word for word so I'd be gone out there coming at you and all that stuff made it really pop so it was a or, you know this is kind of a funny aside but when Bush Sr. won the election in 1988 John Lovett called me to concede and congratulate me before the real Dukakis called George Bush Sr. because he knew and I knew you'll be in a lot of cold open congratulations you're the president of comedy. <laughs> and I knew what he meant. Yeah, it was a very lucky break. I guess that's something you don't think about. You're, you really are hoping that Bush gets in because then you'll get more airtime on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. John wanted to caucus and I wanted Bush. Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to have that bully <laughs> pulpit to wind it down. And John had a really funny caucus and he would have been um, absolutely great as caucus. But, you know, my guy won. And so, yeah, he called <laughs> me early in the evening to once he saw the results coming in uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you ever uh did you ever meet up with with bush uh, and and do that for him to his face or did that ever happen oh yeah like a hundred times i mean he after he lost the election he invited me to the white house and i told the story before but i mean he was um people thought he was really depressed he was a one-term president mm-hmm. and he just called me up and i actually was on the phone with john lovett and i got call waiting and what, what you hear when the president calls you is she says, uh, this is the White House operator number one. Please hold for the president. <laughs> Eerie, right? Mm-hmm. So I go back to John. I got John. I got to go. And he goes, what? You have a bigger name? <laughs> <laughs> so then I've got Bush talking to me, President Bush, you know. I thought he'd come out, cheer up the troops. Keep <laughs> a little down, want to bring him up. And I was so young and naive, I just thought, well, where would I stay? <laughs> he was already thinking, where would I stay? Like, what hotel? Well, I stay with Barr and I right here in the White House. And so we ended up, my wife and I, in the White House for two and a half days with them, hanging out with them, dinner, went to the Kennedy Center honorees. We just really became friends at that point. And then we did charity events throughout the years and different, you know, I hosted and he beamed in. And so became good friends, really. Yeah. It's it's so weird. Amazing. Like, uh, I, I can do one impression, like, in my whole plethora of things and it's the drummer of metallica lars ulrich and (laughs) (laughs) dana it's pretty cool to be talking to you right now it's such a fucking cool thing to be here something is never really done before and so when i finally met lars and did that for him he's kind of looking at me like i don't sound like that and it's like well you kind of do he's like well i really don't with bush or or whoever when you meet these guys (laughs) is it ever almost like an insult for them no, he loved it and, and, and adopted it. And I was always hearing that in his speeches, he was going, you know, wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. And the, the trick we would do for some of the debates we did together is I'd be out there doing Bush Sr. and doing it really over the top. Got it, that education, you know. And then he'd be slowly walking up behind me as if I couldn't see him, but the audience would. They went crazy for that. But he had a complete sense of humor about it. He, he said, never hit below the belt. You know, my style is to keep them guessing. I wasn't like Gomar or other 
comedian John Stewart or, or dentists or comedians who come from a specific um, well-known political point of view. I was sort of the old school. I was kind of like, well, where is he? What what side is he on? Because I, I find, for me personally, it's really fun to have anybody doubt their ideology just when you, they don't know. Mm-hmm. Once you announce yourself, then you got to play to your, your choir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's fun sometimes to, you know, do it in a, a roundabout way. But yeah, Bush loved it. It was really a trip. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas, see? Already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Game on! You're such a great impressionist, which has been part of your thing. And, and the show that we're talking about is called First Impressions, uh, which is basically you giving uh, impressionist impersonators like tests and, 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 and trying to make them just kind of like find out America's best impressionist. And you're uh, yeah. basically right. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah. I mean, it was just there's, there's singer shows, this and that. So they offered me six on the air. They go, we wanted to an impressionist competition show. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that should exist somewhere. Um, but I always thought it wouldn't sustain with the voice of the American Idol, like a four-month season. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't think that would work because it's too uh, limited in a way. There's really like 15 or 20 voices you can do. But um, they said, oh, no, we'll do a half-hour episode. We'll just have three come on. You got, you'll got, you interact with them a little bit, riff with them. and then some, It was like bite-sized, just friendly. And so... So I said, well, I don't want to be a judge. I just want to be kind of off to the side riffing, and I want to have a friend with me. So they kept saying yes to everything I asked, so I kind of had to do it. <laughs> That's because, of, because of your legendary status, obviously. <laughs> I, I guess. I mean, you know, look, I, I hear Frank Caliendo or Kevin Pollack, I, you know, stuff they do, I'm in awe of. I mean, I, I, I still consider it a tool that I use comedically, because I'm ultimately a church lady and you know, uh, Garth are more, I'm more known for characters mm-hmm. really than impressions, but it's, I enjoy, I enjoy watching people do impressions, especially ones that I can't do, or if they do it better than me. I do, I do find it very just entertaining to watch an impressionist. And well, it's very entertaining. And, and I guess it's, I have a kind of a two prong question here, but if you're talking about an impression, like you just mentioned, like you take a bush, like there's nothing really to impersonate, but when you can find something, everyone goes, wow, that's exactly it. 
how do you put together your impressions? You watch somebody and go, oh, I could do this little bit that no one would. Like, what's, what's the secret to doing a good impression? Well, for my money, it's a little bit of, um, you know, abstracting or, you know, bringing out little things that they do and not worrying for me personally, but I don't have that ear like Frank Caliendo where it's perfectly accurate, but it just feels accurate, you know. Mm. Um, when I do Trump now, I'm just playing with it, but, you know, the, everybody does this, okay, this guy down here, and this is certainly part of it. But it's all swap here, okay? These guys are crazy. I mean, he has that upper register, too, So, and he says, okay, so uh-huh. I just exaggerate it. So we're down here, this is like, like if he was a Batman villain, you'll never get away with this, Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I will, okay? Because <laughs> I'm the Trump guy. Okay, 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 okay. So I just exaggerated. And for Obama, <clears throat> I noticed that there were three Obamas, and there's the very low-key, you know, very methodical, and there's Obama at a press conference, and then there's Obama out on the stump, like at a college or something. Mm-hmm. And that's very much, you know, upper register. They don't, they don't want to do anything. They're not going to cooperate. And then if you come down into the center, then you kind of tussle it right down the middle, and you just trip off that last <laughs> word. Like, if you, if you say that's not true, he would say, that's not true. That's not true. So I'm trying to find the rhythms and define them. And the first four years of his administration, I was, it wasn't really connecting it after he got reelected people relaxed mm-hmm. you know because the first african-american president i i guess you know i look i'm norwegian or something so there was a sensitivity to it um but they definitely the audience relaxed and then um it started to be my biggest uh character in my act mm-hmm. for a period of time you know until trump came in <laughs> right, right 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 who uh who, who was your first impression that you did when you were like a kid like did you just do it when you were like eight years old for your parents or something when I was nine years old, there was, we had an encyclopedia, a caller's encyclopedia, and they would send you a long-running vinyl LP of the, of the events of the year. And on the B side, at the very end, was the Beatles talking. Mm-hmm. You know, a big phenomenon. And they were talking, you know, there's all this thing, and we, we, you know, we don't know if we're going to last or whatever, we're doing it. You know, we go, we do, you know. <laughs> and so that was the first, you know, I was able to, within a couple of days, even though I had three older brothers, I could go around talking kind of like a beetle. <laughs> and I, I went up to my mother one morning and I said, Mom, do you think I could get me some pancakes? You know, so that was the beginning. <laughs> oh, my God, he sounds like a beetle. <laughs> um, and then I had a tape recorder that I finally got in sixth grade, a little reel-to-reel tape recorder. I would tape Jonathan Winters and Rich Little. I did it just secretly in my room. I never took theater arts. I was sort of an introverted extrovert or a mm-hmm. you know, extroverted introvert. But I, I did dream of being just a comedian on TV somehow when I was nine. You know, yeah. You know, and that, that was, it started early. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. There's a, a movie called uh, Walk Hard that came out a couple of years ago with John C. Riley. It was kind of like a Johnny Cash yeah. spoof. Yeah. And he, yeah. Me- he meets up with the Beatles. And it was great because we're talking about like uh, Justin Long did a George Harrison, which. Once again, who can do a George Harrison? And for whatever reason, he nailed it. And that it was so funny because you can do a John and a Paul, but who does a George? And he did it. That was the perfect example of just finding this little weird thing and making it into, oh, that's all just like him. Yeah, and that would be a matter of homework. Mm-hmm. You know, I do, in my stand-up, I do a long, five-minute conversation between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Oh, really? It's about wor- working with Kanye West. And, and, and then they get into what is the web, you know, what's Facebook? You know, Facebook, John, is a place where you share your life with the world. 
so there's sort of that nasally lower register of Joan. And Paul was all like that, but yeah, certainly George has something in the Mitchell bow, you know, the little <laughs> Podlians. He has a sort of rhythm that he does. That's part of it, you know, he was the middle harmony guy, but, you know, so for my generation, you know, I was just, that was it. I mean, because I, my brother and I were uh, the one closest to me. We had a band called The Surfers. I had a clothes hamper that I would kick for a bass drum, mm-hmm. and I had a Hardy Boys book and drumsticks that I stole from Mickey Hart's store, because I didn't realize I would shoplift these drumsticks in, in my hometown, Laurel, uh, Laurel Avenue in San Carlos, California. And I ran into the Grateful Dead at the Four Seasons years later, and Mickey Hart, the drummer, said he'd owned a music store on Laurel Avenue, so I handed him 10 bucks. <laughs> How do you steal drumsticks? Put them down your pants? Oh, yeah. Right down the pants. <laughs> Little innocent kid. Boom. Oh, we all shoplifted for a period of time until I got caught. Yeah, we put... My brother Brad, who I based Garth on, was more of a scientist about it. Like, we'd be over in a record store, and he would have slowly gotten a full LP right under his jacket, and he would just say to me, I could take it. I could take it if I wanted to. And then he would put it back. So he was, you know, they put bicycle parts down my pants. <laughs> it was just, just juvenile delinquents, basically. I, I, remember, you know. I remember I went to Florida with my parents when I was probably eight, and we went to a 7-Eleven, and I shoplifted a, uh, a pack of Starburst. And I put them down the front. Of, I remember I was wearing gray sweatpants, and as I was walking out, a guy put his hand on my shoulder and said, take those out of your pocket right now. And all I could think of is, please don't let my dad see this. And the guy just took it out of my pocket and put it back. But thank God he didn't tell my dad. I still remember that to this day. I would have gotten in so much trouble for getting caught shoplifting Starburst. It's not even something cool like your drumsticks. I didn't. I had, I, I had a, a secret pocket in my jacket. Remember, I was four feet tall. I was eight, nine years <laughs> And I had, I had a shoplifted a yo-yo and i was on my stingray the guy the getaway right and then the guy just grabbed the back of the banana seat and the stingray so that was it yeah <laughs> because my older brother completely corrupted me totally well that's what older brothers are for right b- b- right and then of course they were like i can't believe you shoplifted that Jeez, <laughs> did, you, did you ever impersonate your, your dad or, or your brothers at all oh yeah well brad is garth uh-huh. um, oh really yeah okay Bra- Brad, Brad is Garth. I mean, he's the character I based Garth on. If we could put him on the song, he'd go, hi, hi, this is Brad. I could talk like this. So he is Garth. I mean, there's a part of Garth that was kind of the stoner dude. Go away. But the quiet Garth is just totally Brad. This is great. If you're going to spew, spew into this. Completely Brad. That's why in the first movie, he had the stun gun and all that. And I talked to Brad about the viability of Garth being a science nerd kid. That was all based on Brad. Yeah. So do you ask his permission? Like, hey, Brad, I got this character that's kind of based on you. Do you mind if I do it? Or you just kind of do it and go, hey, check it out. I just did it, and, and he loved it, because it was just a cool character to be associated with. You know, He was very successful himself, or is. He developed the first prototype for a home video recording called the Video Toaster in the 90s. So he was, oh. we sort of got together with that. I'm a very funny family. I mean... My sister Lori is just someone who just just asks questions that she knows the you know she's just kind of an innocent. <laughs> Why are you doing a podcast, Dane? Why don't you do these things? And it's just a friend. What do you <laughs> talk about, Dane? You know that. You know how long is it? It's about forty-five minutes. Why is it that long, Dane? So this him, and then my my dad would talk like this. Oh, you big dummy! Oh, Jesus Christ! You don't know what you're doing. So that was him. And my mother talked like this. I think all my children are wonderful. 
<laughs> you must have drove them nuts with those impersonations, man. My brother Scott is someone who's very emotional. Like, if you go to his house and he goes for the hide key and it's not there, I, um, I go, you don't have a hide key? Uh, I don't know where it is. I'll have a thousand hide keys tomorrow. I'll live in a hide key. <laughs> right now, I don't have a hide key. You saw it. You saw it. I put it. It's been there a thousand times. That's God. <laughs> I haven't you, really developed all of them yet on stage, so I should. But but you mentioned before about being in, in a band and you started out, you know, hitting a, a Hardy Boys book as a drum. I was going to ask you about this. The church lady busted out a wicked drum solo at one time. Garth plays drums. Obviously, you play drums. Did you ever play drums in a band? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, mostly garage bands and stuff and weddings. And my brother, Scott, got a guitar at a garage sale for a dollar with one string. So he learned Louie Louie, <laughs> and we were off at the races. I mean, he came back when he was 12. He got to go in seventh grade up to the Summer West in 1967 or 8. And he goes, I just saw the best guitar player in the world. I go, what's his name? He goes, I think it's Jimmy Hondrick. <laughs> well, we played a lot. And look, if I'd had the talent to be a, a rock rock uh, star or whatever, I would have done that. Do you, um, do, who, who are some of the, the drummers that, that you uh, kind of got influenced from? Um, well, back in the day, you know, Carmen PC or Beck Bogart and PC, I saw them, you know. Yeah. Uh, Cozy, Cozy Powell, who really was Classic. great with the hi-hat, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when you look back, I mean, you got to give it up. I mean, John Bonham, I mean, there's kind of only, I mean, he's, you know. And I, I love Keith Moon. I mean, I think the first side of Who's Next is, a masterwork on every level, and mm-hmm. his drumming is just just uh, gorgeous. And at least three times a year, I go on YouTube and watch. There's a Buddy Rich drum solo where I just sit in awe of his one-handed rolls. You know, watching... I'm very perfunctory. I I, I I do a little guitar, a little keyboard, and and a little bit of drums. But I love all of it. Yeah, well, you can tell. That's one of the best things when the church lady busted out the drum solo because you would never expect it, and that's why it worked so well because you could actually do it. Yeah, and that one came off because I hadn't drummed in a while, mm-hmm. and that one on air kind of came off. That's the better solo; it's more organic, and it flows <laughs> nicer. And I'm, I'm doing the Ringo. Da, 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 yeah, da, da, thing. yeah. And when I did, I had time to rehearse the drum solo for Wayne's World, and I had a really nice tight. Yamaha jazz set with small drums, very low, all right around me, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I'm not a big reacher. You know? <laughs> and then um, they came in the day of the thing and they go, they had this gigantic drum set because they wanted more publicity for Yamaha drums. I didn't blame them, you know. Right. So that's kind of, I said, well, then give me the red set, you know. Uh-huh. So I had that for a while and then I gave it to my brother's cousin, but I, the solo was not as good as it could have been because I had to reach. Gotcha, yeah, with the bigger kit. See, I mean, the perfectionist thing, I think about those things. Still to this <laughs> day, like, right? If I think about it right now. But the Church Lady one came off very nicely organic. I like that one. That felt very, I was felt really on top of it. And plus it's live. It's not like, take one, take it from this angle, do it again. It's You have one chance to, to nail it. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah, that's the beauty of live. I mean, do you play instruments or? I do. Just... Yeah, I do. I mean, I could I could play that drum solo that you played. You know, the kind of the classic Ringo drum solo. You know, just as long as you get that yeah. foot tap in the bass drum and you don't lose it, you got it. Yeah, that's that's the key. I mean, I've now I've just I've gotten so weak because I got a, a virtual reality rolling drum set, which gives you a lot. I mean, they're they're really fun, but but 
Then you go to a, a, an acoustic set, and you're just like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're talking, about, you're talking about those plastic ones where the symbol is like a black rubber ring, and you hit it? You're yeah. About those? Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're well, brilliant. I mean, at one point, they made a leap, and I went into a music store and just went, holy, wow. It's yeah. not like the rubber thing that is really touch-sensitive, and it's, it's pretty remarkable and really fun. So you still get to do this thing. I just drum. I drum in the car. I drum. I, do, <laughs> I spit beats and drum in the car. I drum on my... Uh, computer, I, I'm always kind of drumming. Drumming I, something. You know, Let's talk a little bit about about, about, the, about your Johnny Carson uh, imitation, because that was that was one of my favorites that you used to do. Um, you probably still do it. Is that is that something that, that you did in, for Johnny as well? Yeah, I did. I mean, I had my... I did went on Johnny six times, I believe. And six times, wow. I I started doing it around the office. Um, just, uh, is, is that right? That, that is weird, wild stuff. I did not know that. And once again, Robert Smigel just loved it so much. So we worked on that together. And that was probably, in a way, one of my favorite things I've ever done on the show because it was, it was so dry and quiet. It wouldn't even get really big laughs, but I just, it felt like the funniest thing I did on the show at the time. And I loved being out there with Phil. Mm-hmm. But just that explaining. For those of you at home that don't know, um, you're watching a thing called television. You know, just that. And when you when when they uh, we did Carcinio, yeah, you know, a crib is not exactly where a baby sleeps. That's kind of where they. That's like their house. Did you, did you know that? <laughs> I did not know that. So it was, and then eventually Johnny got a little perturbed by it. So. Did he? <laughs> but there was one episode which I thought was a little mean. I fought against it, but we did it anyway. They made Johnny a little cynical and over senile. Oh, Oh, one of the sketches that you did on SNL? Yeah, and then Jay Leno told me later that Johnny would go down the hall. They're making fun of me now. It's time to go. (laughs) (laughs) But he was was the best and brilliant, and he was very nice to me. I mean, when when you were out there with Johnny Carson as a guest, he is just 100% for you. He was. Was this? um, Sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to let you know something I do, Johnny 2016, just for my friends. Uh-huh. I just, um, it's just him being pulled over on the PCH, you know, a different time of drinking and driving, and describes the kind of drink he had and where he had it at. Just, that's what makes me laugh. Oh, sorry, officer, I didn't know I was speeding. I uh, had two slippery monkeys at the hook and crook. <laughs> just makes me laugh. Two slippery monkeys. At the hook and crook. But, and emphasizing the crook. The hook and crook. <laughs> the hook and crook. I had two frozen soldiers at the Windy Summit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just had a voice and a, you know, an Ed McMahon. So that's for our generation. But you know, about six months ago, my son, who's 23, just said, uh, Hey, Dad, um, who is Johnny Carson? Ooh, wow, yeah. It's hard to yeah, believe. Yeah. You know? Did you ever do Johnny before you were on SNL? No, I kind of, no, I didn't. I did, I just started doing it when I was there, I think, after going on with him a few times. I just developed that, because I'd seen Rich Little do it. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing of, I did not, is that weird wild stuff, that sort of other quieter Johnny. Yeah, was, right. Yeah. So, what did that you, was really satisfying. What did you do for your uh, uh, Sunday Live audition? Did you have to do some impressions on that? Yeah, I had, there was a piano. I did, I did um, Shop and Broccoli. I did a little bit of Church Lady. I did this lost British character. I probably did some Jimmy Stewart. You know, this was back in the 80s. Um, yeah, I did a lot of little voices and stuff. Um, I was very, very, very fortunate to get that show. So are you doing it right for Lauren? Is he sitting right there watching you? 
Yeah, and like maybe four other people, and they're not smiling or laughing. That's the second audition. The first one was, which he said basically he hired me from when he saw me at a comedy club on the West Side uh, doing 45 minutes. He brought Cher mm-hmm. with him, and that he said that, yeah, that he wanted me right then and there. So that, and I'd auditioned three times before and never got it, but Lauren had never seen it. Oh, really? Okay. And that's the secret. I yeah, I had a Disney face. I didn't really look like a comedian, you know, and um, people would pass over me a lot. So, I, you know, I, I thank Lauren again. I saw him Saturday after <laughs> I did it, you know, because anytime you have, like, a coach, Lauren's, like, a really good coach in, the, in, in my regard because he saw something in me before I saw something in me. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I thought I might do okay, but he thought I would really do great once my confidence got up. So, um, So that was nice. It was ended up being a good experience. It can be a very tricky show, but I was lucky to do the church lady on my very first show. Oh, that was the that first the first show you brought it in. Well, it was the last sketch on the on the practice show, and then it killed so hard it moved up to the first sketch on the very first show. And I'd never done sketch comedy in my life. Hmm. I had to keep stopping from looking at the audience every time they laugh, like a stand-up. <laughs> right. It was new. I just never done it. But you know, I had such great. I had Bill. Hartman and Jan Hooks and, you know, John Lovitz, you know, had some really powerful. It seems like you always had really good chemistry with, with Phil Hartman. He, he He's one of the most funniest guys that was ever on the show. Yeah, Phil was the kind of guy who's like, um, he, he would just, just assume he'll, he'll, he'll be in the background, he'll just service the sketch, but if you want him to go to the lead, and he'll do that. Yeah, there was just no, it was very easy with Phil. And when we did Johnny Carson and McMahon, it's just, um, every time I looked at him, I laughed. You know, <laughs> yeah. Phil was a kind of effortless. You know, he just had so much talent; he was almost bored by it. He'd much rather talk about Evan Rude, upboard motors and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, He's, yeah, he was a Renaissance man. He'd come over and play the blues. And oh, really? Guitar player? Airport. Excuse me. He's a guitar player. He was kind of an everything. Yeah, he played the guitar. He played guitar. He, he was a he designed Poco's album. He was an artist. Um, he loved his airplane. We'd go to the airport and just put on headsets and just listen to air traffic and look at his airplane. He had his boat, go on his boat. You know, Phil was just a, uh, he lived around the corner from me and my wife and our kids, and we all still keep in touch, you know. We yeah. were very, very close. So it was uh, it's another bizarre tragedy, you know. But Bren was a really cool, loyal person. I mean, that was just mm-hmm. a psychotic break and drugs, and so it was um, that, that, but yeah, I miss Phil. I miss him. You know, when I, when I go to SNL, I really kind of, you know, you just you see the pictures in the hallway, and mm-hmm. you know, you kind of want Phil to be out there too with you. You know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, yeah. So. It's, it's, and Jan too was great. Jan Hooks, my God. She was hilarious as well. Yeah, probably one of the funniest women that have ever been on the show. She was. She was. She was right up there. There's been such strong women on that show in the last ten years, but Jan would be right in there with with you know Amy, Maya, mm-hmm. Kristen Wiig, Kate McGinn, and Tina Fey. I mean, it's just been amazing. Um, the strength of the women cast members in the last ten years, hasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think the fact that they're doing, um, I think the, the Ghostbusters remake that they're doing with the all female cast. I think three of the girls are SNL. Mm-hmm. Either they're on the show now or alumni. I mean, that's huge. I know it's a trip, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, just a, cu- a couple more questions. Just talking about the chemistry that you had with a couple guys. Like when you're talking about, like, it, would you say that Garth is your most most well known character, or would it be Church Lady? I would say in the long run, they may be neck and neck now, but I would say Garth because of the movie. 
And there's YouTube videos here and there, but the movie just floats around, and the movie's very evergreen. Whereas Church Study would talk about different political events at the time, kind of. But mm-hmm. the movie, everyone knows or knew like Wayne and Nagar, two, two losers in the town that are happier <laughs> than anybody else for no apparent reason. Yeah, but that's, why, that's yeah. why it connected, because they were just every man, like you mentioned, especially that time frame, the stoner rocker guys, like, I was that age group when you guys were doing it. It's like these are this is me and my friends, like in the Bohemian Rhapsody in the car. I mean, that's my life. That's it. You nailed it. Yeah, yeah, and that really hurt. You know, I was like thirty six, doing that thing all night with your neck going. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was. You know, Mike was a very clever writer. He's younger than me by about eight years, and because uh, I thought, well, didn't Bill and Ted do this? You know, but Mike took it to this whole other area. Mm-hmm. And it was a great construct, and I was able to. It was fun to be the sidekick, kind of the sort of the Ringo guy, you know, or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the uh, the sweet, loyal sidekick. You know, it was a really, really fun thing to do. And I think the first movie was fast, low budget, and spontaneous. But it has a real spark to it. You know, first that basic mind's world. So I, it's also real to me that that happened as well. <laughs> did Mike come to you and say, I got this idea or how did you guys hash that out? He had done Wayne in Canada. He was a, he was a child actor and he'd done Wayne. And I think when he came to SNL, he did Wayne's world. And I don't know if, if it was his suggestion or Lauren, but to have a sidekick and he mm-hmm. just said, your name is Garth and you dig Wayne. <laughs> so I saw his look. So then I just went with the blonde hair wig. I should remember walking through the department with him. I'll, I'll wear the blonde wig and these glasses, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then we, it just sort of happened spontaneously, but it um, ended up just, uh, you know, getting huge. I mean, we were just shocked by it, I mean, really, just shocked. <laughs> it's amazing when a character like that hits, how it just puts you in a completely different level. Well, movies are timeless. I mean, it's it's very, to be part of the biggest movie that SNL ever put out, you know, it's just like, wow, you know, really, really flattering. And I just, uh, Mike was great, and uh, Bonnie and Terry Turner helped form the first script and yeah amazing right yeah totally and being plus being such a, a musical guy and a musical fan uh just getting ready to wrap it up when you talk about you know snl one of the biggest things is the musical guests that show up and you're talking about being a fan and being a drummer who was the, was there a couple guests the musical guests that showed up that kind of blew your mind as far as you never thought you'd get a chance to, to hang out with them or meet them or work with them Oh, yeah. I mean, when Roy Orbison came on, it was like in the studio, like, wow, okay, that's the real deal. I remember being a huge Neil Young fan as I am, hanging out with Neil. One night we went out to dinner with Neil, Phil and I and a few people. And I said to Phil, let's make Neil Young, uh, let, let's just destroy him with comedy. So we just started going off on characters. Phil's doing a Japanese bomber pilot. I'm doing the present. So we got Neil helpless intentionally. Was he, was he laughing? Ass, laughing his ass off. It's a very dry sense of humor. And I know this is one moment with Neil Young on there. Forget. So we're at the after party after drinks, and it's just so cool to talk to him. He's just a really funny, just really funny. And he he looked up. He was having a glass of wine. He looked up. He saw Chris Farley. And he goes, "That fat kid's funnier than shit." <laughs> <laughs> that was really awesome. You nailed that. When Neil is. I'm from Winnipeg. Just like Neil is, and that's the total Winnipeg accent. You got it. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh that guy's funny, man. Holy shit, is he funny? Oh, that guy's funnier than shit, eh? Yeah, it was that. You know, and seeing, you know, hanging out with Eric Clapton, it was just too much, too much overload. A lot of these 
people come on that show. Really? Did really. you did you do a Jagger or did you, or you did a Keith? Did you Keith or Jagger? I did Keith in a sketch with Mike. Yeah. Right. Mike was Mick, and you were Keith. Yeah. He <laughs> got. Um, well, this is a true story. When Keith Richards hosted during the dinner break, we had a horse on that show, so there was a horse tied up off to the side on eight H. Mm-hmm. And I was there working with some props. No one was around. And Keith Richards sort of staggered into view. He mm-hmm. couldn't see me. And he goes up to the horse, and he puts the horse's head in his hands. And he goes, look at you. You're a f***ing horse. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just staggered away. Never forgot that. He just told the animal what it was and then walked away. <laughs> just, just to clarify it to that poor horse in case he's having any identity. You're a horse. Yeah, never forgot that. But yeah, that was that was really cool. <laughs> Last question: uh, What is the most obscure impression that you do? Mm, boy, that I do, man. I got. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's really obscure, but sometimes I just have fun. I don't even do it just for my wife and I. She likes Downton Abbey. This one's kind of goofy, but Downton Abbey is like this British. You know, there's the patriarch and the, the, the servants, but it's there's a character called. Mr. Bates, um, but I changed it a little bit, so the matriarch is going, what on earth is wrong with Master Bates? Well, my lady, Master Bates disappears for long periods of time into his room where most unusual sounds are emitted, my lady. What can we do to find out what Master Bates is doing, Mr. Carson? So right now, any of your listeners who've seen that show are dying with laughter. Dude, if you haven't seen it, it's still pretty damn funny, I'll tell you. Well, have you seen The Walking Dead? Yeah. Well, I used to do the sheriff like he was always out of breath, and then the old guy who kind of comes back in dream sequences or lost his leg. Herschel. be like, yeah, yeah, the sheriff Rick is like, we're not going that way. (laughs) We're going that way. And Herschel's like, listen to yourself, Rick. You need cardio. You're out of breath. Listen to yourself. I'm not out of breath. <laughs> That's another one I used to do. <laughs> they do things that just half the audience. If you do impressions, a lot of the audience doesn't know who they are. A certain amount will, but you know it's hard to get everyone to know who you're doing because it's also but captured. It, isn't, it the, isn't it the commitment, though? As long as you commit to it and stick with it, you'll always get a laugh. Oh, totally. I think so, yeah. That's the number one thing you always have to remember is make yourself laugh inside mm-hmm. when you're doing comedy. It's it's a tricky one, but yeah, that's the best place to be, you know. So. Yeah, Dana, you're great, man. It was it was Thanks, awesome Chris. talking Thank to you. you. I, I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, it was really fun. Well, Thank- let's do it again sometime. You know, have me back in the fall or something. I will I'm actually promote my special. Yeah, for sure. I'll, actually, uh, Dennis Miller set us up, and, and Dennis did this show, and he's he's a great guy. He's like, Has Carvey called you yet? I'm like, no, but I'm sure he's busy. That's bullshit. I'm gonna have him call you. I can't do Dennis like <laughs> you know. can. But yeah, <laughs> so. it was fine. It was fine. I knew I'd get around to it. It was the busiest time of my life getting ready to do that special. It just put me underwater. But I oh. love Dennis. He's a great guy. I, you know, my IQ goes up when I talk to him and when I do him. Christ sakes, Jericho, God, hitting it out of the ballpark. You know, you're like F. Scott Fitzgerald up there. Speedball coming right down at the lady. Okay. I was like, it's like a giant snake, and I was holding onto the tail, just trying to keep up with him and trying to fake my way, pretending that I knew what he was talking about. And just, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, he's, he's like you said, a very smart guy, much smarter than, than I. 
Oh, no. I mean, his, his vocabulary, he's got a Rolodex in his brain, and it's just effortless for him. And sometimes you figure out what he was saying later on. <laughs> really laugh. But, yeah, he's an extraordinarily uh, mental giant, really. I mean, just the way he can form words. On his radio show, I used to be in awe, and I'd watch him go 30, 40 seconds out to a commercial break, and he would just, like, lay out these words perfectly lined up, and then we'll be right back. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Harvey's on top of a rocket. Okay, he's riding that lady up into the sky. Okay, he's not, he rarely calls me Dana. He calls everyone their last. Name. The last name, yeah, yeah, Carvey. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my man, we'll we'll have you back when you do your special, and it's it's been great talking to you. I really it's appreciate. Been a pleasure. It. Thank really you, Dana. Thank you. Cheers, right, man. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Swing. Pitbull. She's a babe. She's magically babelicious. So episode three of Dana Carvey's new competition show, First Impressions, airs this Tuesday night at 10.30 p.m. EST. That's Eastern Standard Time on the USA Network. It's only a half hour. I think it's actually 10.30 all across the board. And the PST as well, which is Pacific. It's only half an hour. It's jam-packed with laughs. And they got some great contestants and great guest judges. John Lovitz has been on. Steve Carell was on the first episode. Kevin Nealon's coming up. Check out First Impressions on the USA Network starring Dana Carvey and... Another Talk is Jericho alumni, Freddie Prince Jr. is hosting. So check that out. Uh, and let me mention this one more time because it's such a great cause and getting down to the wire. Kevin Owens and Tyler Breeze have started a GoFundMe page for the victims of the Alberta fires. They're trying to raise $100,000 and they're over halfway there. So how about if you can, these people have lost everything, okay? Their homes, their clothes, personal items, everything. Every dollar helps. So please give what you can. You can get uh, to the GoFundMe page through Kevin Owens' Twitter account. He's at Owens fight. Tyler is at mm, gorgeous, and that's MMM, three M's. And thanks to you guys for supporting them, and thanks to you guys for supporting all the great sponsors of this podcast, including the OG sponsor, Amazon. Easiest way to support Talk is Jericho. Just go to podcastone.com, click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. All my Amazon links are there, US, UK, Canada. And remember, every time you use Talk is Jericho Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a small percentage to this show to help us cover production costs. No fidden fees or extra charges, okay? So go to podcastone.com, click on the Killer Deals button, and get your, uh, get your, uh, your items. And when you buy something... Don't forget to take a picture of it. Post it at Talk is Jericho. I will retweet it and follow you. Become a Talk is Jericho Amazon warrior. And check out the rest of my uh, sponsors, DDP Yoga and the DDP Yoga Now app. Go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho and get three free months of the DDP Yoga Now app. True Car is there. Uber is there. Everyone's there. Thank you so much for listening. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next. And next Wednesday on the show, some call him the greatest of all time. 16-time world champion. You know who it is. Woo! Ric Flair is going to be here for the first time ever. His talk is Jericho debut. And, man, he's a, he's a trip. It's a, it was, a, I'm sure, the first of many great conversations we're going to have. The champ, Ric Flair, is here on Wednesday. You guys are champs, too. Have a safe weekend. I love you guys. God bless you. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big good boy. Thank you. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. It's like a new pair of underwear, you know? At first it's constrictive, but after a while it becomes a part of you.